Welcome back to the Hard Parking Podcast. I want to jump right into a few things this week. But first, I got to tell you about Talk Mobile. Talk Mobile is an innovator in retail and works with organizations like T Mobile to operate stores throughout Arizona, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Louisiana. For more information and jumpstart your career, please visit talkmobilenet.com. Again, that's talkmobilenet.com. They are our title sponsor. Good people to work with. Love them. Two things I want to get into this episode. This is Black History Month, February. I watched a really cool documentary, once again by Adam Carolla. This one's called Uppity, about Willie T. Ribs, a black race car driver. It kind of chronicles his struggle to finally reach his goal through the late 70s into the super early 90s. A lot of disappointing things in that documentary, none of which had to do with the actual content. It was very well done. There's some things that I have some reaction to. In the next podcast, the hope is to sit down with Last Era founder, Eric Peja. He's been on the podcast before during the Monterey Car Week episode that we had a lot of fun. And he's also watched that. I've watched it twice. We're going to compare notes from a race car perspective. We're going to go over uppity in more detail. I'm also joined by Adam Kiss of Adam Kiss Photography. That'll be the Instagram profile highlight of the week. That'll be coming up. Plus, I'll also answer some of your questions that I ask on Instagram, the car question and the non-car question of the week. But first, believe it or not, I have some complaining to do. Starbucks. Still waiting on Starbucks to get it together. Whether I'm Jay Fizzle or I'm Crazy Jay, because I change my name every time, still having to rotate the cup. Not as often, but often enough. Starbucks, for God's sake. Please get your shit together. Recording this episode from a Courtyard Marriott in the Palm Desert, I have a traffic-facing room. Going forward, if I continue to stay here, I'm going to ask for a Courtyard room. Until it gets warm enough to swim, then I'm going to stop staying here. And I say that because you hear everybody playing in the pool, and it fucks up my podcast. Last time I stayed here and did a podcast, now that I think about it, it's when we did our Builder's Corner with Johnny, and I literally took that phone call in the closet. I'm not going to be standing in the closet no more. I had an Uber driver recently. Uh, some of you may be Uber drivers, maybe Lyft drivers. I was on the way to the airport, and a couple times recently, I have actually came out on a Monday morning. Almost two rides in a row, I've been the last person to board my flight. I usually cut it a little short, but let's get to the driver. Rush hour traffic. So this is a Monday morning. You have to get in the HOV lane. This lady, she was scared to get in the HOV lane. And I'm sitting in the back seat. Now, I keep my cool. That's what I'm known for, being kind of even killed, not losing my shit, being polite. Because I'm not going to tell somebody how to drive out of their comfort zone because you risk an accident. If you get an accident, everybody's fucked. There's two ways to get to the airport from my house. The difference between the two in mileage is about probably two miles. But traffic depending... Damned if you do, damned if you don't. This time we go straight. She gets over in the HOV lane, and then she gets right back out within like two miles. She could have stayed another five or six miles. Now, she's lived in the Phoenix area longer than me. She should know, stay your ass in the HOV lane. And then you get out. And then you cut across traffic. And then you just do what you got to do. So she exits the HOV lane, and I'm just watching people fly by as we're in this fucking rush hour traffic. I'm looking at my watch. You know, when I left the house, I had 45 minutes left before boarding, which where I live is 
Plenty of time. Back when I used to drive to the airport, not during rush hour, but when I used to drive to the airport, I could get there in 20 minutes, 20 to 25 minutes in my SUV. I didn't drive the speed limit. That's beside the point. But I can get to the airport, I can get to terminal parking, and I can be out of my vehicle within 25 minutes at the most. I'm in this Uber. We have 45 minutes to get to the airport, almost an hour. She sits in this lane and cars are flying by. I'm starting to make comments, but I'm not rude. I'm like, yeah, you know, you can get over. This lane collapses. You might want to get over. Then you get over up here. Thank God there's two exit lanes. So we finally get to the airport. She's driving all slow as all get out. And I'm looking at my clock. And then before I even get to the terminal to where you let people out of the car, the drop-off area, boarding had already started. I'm sitting in the backseat like, oh, fuck. And she's sitting in that line because every airport has this line, the line that doesn't move. So she's sitting in this line that doesn't move. And I tell her, go as far down as you can. It's the A gates this time. It's literally like the last door. And so what everybody does is you get out of that lane that doesn't move and you fly up the outside lane like everybody does it. Cars are whipping by at 25 miles an hour, which doesn't sound fast. But when you're sitting still, it's fast. So she just rides that lane, rides that lane, rides that lane, finally gets out. I finally get out. She's like, thank you so much for your patience. You know, I never want people to feel like they have to drive out of their comfort zone, like I said earlier. But if you're going to be an Uber driver, drive. If you're going to be a Lyft driver, drive. If you know your passenger is late, legitimately late, if they're going for an airport, you don't have to drive aggressive, but you don't have to drive like a little fucking bitch. Get out of the business. My wife said, you're so nice. You're a lot nicer than I ever would have been. I would have been pissed. I said, oh yeah, I was pissed. I made my flight though. So I didn't miss my flight. But I couldn't believe it. I was like, you gotta be fucking kidding me right now. You've gotta be fucking kidding me. Had a really weird thing happen last weekend. This last weekend, I was at a car event called Fountain Hills. The Fountain Hills Concourse. The Concourse on the Hills. Fountain Hills, Arizona. Nice ritzy area. They have this huge fountain in the middle that shoots up water like a geyser, sort of like every 20 minutes or so. So this was probably the fifth or sixth year in a row they've been doing this charity car show. And I didn't know until this year. Like, I never knew. I've had friends that were in it. I just never looked into how to register. But there's all sorts of cars here. I mean, you know, like the last time I was talking about Future Collector Car Show, which is this on a lot smaller scale, which is really cool and it's growing. This one was the charity for the Phoenix Children's Hospital between... Registered vehicles, just over a thousand in donations. They raised two hundred fifty thousand dollars, a quarter of a million dollars for this event. For me, it was a bucket list item. So once I realized I could go, I registered, paid the sixty bucks or whatever it was. They parked all the NSXs by the Mazdas, kind of on the other side of the pond. But this year it was so big, the show wrapped all the way around the pond, so everyone was walking around. Thousands of people attended. I think there's twenty or something, you know, food trucks. Highlight of the show to me. There was a McLaren F1. Now, if you think back to the Monterey Car Week episode, up until that point, I had never seen a McLaren F1 in person. This one was like a pure one, and the guy drove it to the show. How awesome was that? I got a couple cool pictures. You can see one on my Instagram at NA2NSX. I was there early because we had to be, you know, so when you're in a car show, you got to be there at a certain time to set up as an exhibitor. And so... Getting there early kind of gives you the opportunity to take photos and see the cars rolling in. Like the Barrett-Jackson, like candy red and chrome Veyron, like almost ran me over. 
I just kind of glance at it like I don't care. Like you get so desens you get so uh desensitized to some of these vehicles living where I live in that area, like not my house, but just that general area. Cause I remember when I first moved to Arizona, it's like, oh my God, that's a Porsche GT3 RS. Oh, there's another Porsche GT3. Oh, a 911. Eh. Oh, look, 458. Whoop de do. So then it takes something that's like a 458 with a Beastbook kit or a Mansory kit or something special about the car to catch your attention because you're so used to seeing them. But seeing this McLaren, it's like, holy shit. When the show started, you had the McLaren sitting out there on the lawn and everyone's walking up to it and taking pics. Like these, the cars that are here, they're not roped off. You can go to them. You know, they had the Ford versus Ferrari set up where the stunt drivers were there signing autographs and they had a Ford, they had a Ferrari that were probably used in the show or there were replicas of the cars used in the show. It was probably 150 to $200 million worth of cars on the lot that you could walk up to. I walked around the whole thing two or three times and I still missed a lot of the vehicles. But that was Saturday. So leaving the concourse event, decided to stop at a gas station, put some E85, have a, have a, uh, a pure E85 station somewhat close to my house. So I'm pumping the gas and this SUV pulls up. Some Spanish people, like Mexicans from south of the border, you can tell because of the license plate. There's three people in the SUV. The woman driving kind of motioned me over there. She's like, excuse me, excuse me. I go, yeah, what's up? I started walking toward the car, but I never walked up to a car. She was holding some orb in her hand or some shit. She was like, oh, we, we, we don't, we need, do you have uh, gas money? I think she was trying to give me something for some gas money. And I never carry cash, nor am I going to fill up someone's tank. I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I don't carry any cash. I go, oh, okay, thank you. You have a nice car. I said, oh, okay, thanks. And they pull off. So I finished getting gas and I'm pulling out of the gas station and I see them go down and they turn around and do U-turn and start coming back. So I'm thinking, oh, they're probably working the gas station for some money. First off, if you don't have any gas money, then why the fuck are you driving around in an SUV? Like just pull that motherfucker over like some people do, set up shop, maybe pop the hood and just walk around and ask people for gas money. Eventually someone's going to give you gas money. Think nothing of it. Next day, February 9th, it's my birthday. Yeah, so I'm older than I was when I did the last podcast. We go out to breakfast, the family, and I'm parking the car. I'm the last one. Everybody else is inside, like getting, uh, putting our name in for, for a table. And I lock the car and I start walking away. I hear, excuse me, excuse me. I turn around and it's an, it's an SUV. Same situation, different SUV, three Spanish people. And they're like, they're like, I go, yeah, what's up? Come here. I go, well, what's up? What can I help you with? Hey, we, uh, is it, come here. They're like motion me. And I'm like, I'm not going to fucking walk with you. Fucking what the fuck? So I took a couple steps close, close, but I, I mean, a couple steps, but I never got more than like eight feet from the vehicle. I was like, what's up? What do you need? Can you help us? Yeah. What do you need? Can you help us? What do you need? Then we need money. You know, we're not from here. We need gas money. I'm kind of looking at the driver. This time it's a guy, a lady and someone else in the back seat. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't have any money, but I was kind of weirded out because this was two days in a row. And I'm wondering if there's some sort of a hustle now in Arizona. And these are, these are weird times. Like I'm not a, I'm not a paranoid person. I'm like, if I come up to the car, are you going to like, I'm not worried about getting kidnapped, but are you going to fucking reach out and shank me, stab me, pull a gun on me, ask me for my wallet and pull off. You know what I mean? Again, it was a out of a country license plate, you know, from South of the border. Kind of some scary shit. Coming up, my rental car of the week. I have one. I'm going to talk about it. We're going to talk about Adam Kiss Photography. 
We're going to talk a little bit about uppity. Welcome back. Just want to give you guys an update on the front lip. I installed it on the car and it looks great. And I want to thank Matt and Trent Streeter for that idea that I stole from them in which they said they stole it from JVNSX. So that's what we all do. We steal ideas for each other. So I had it on there for the Fountain Hills show. Looks great. The, the C-clips, the quick nuts, whatever we're going to call them, they worked. They put a tiny little gap but you can't see unless you're on the ground looking directly at the front lip because obviously the, the lip or the splitter, I'm sorry, I keep calling it a lip. The splitter is mounted below the lip, which is mounted below the bumper. So you have to be like an ant to really give a fuck. I'm not an ant, therefore I don't give a fuck. But it looks great, you know. So like I said last time, if you're, if you're looking at something, if you're trying to build something, just sit there and stare at it for a while. Get online, look at some... Look, you know, look to see what other people are doing. You know, hopefully someone's already laid the foundation for you to to um, to work off of. So you're not trying to reinvent the wheel. Like I said, those guys that already mounted it, I guess the only difference is I didn't have to take up my front bumper to do it. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. And that segment is sponsored by, before I get to Jay's Rental Car of the Week, I just want to say that the podcast is also sponsored by DressUpBolts.com. Follow them on Instagram. Addressabolts.com, they have titanium bolts that only vastly improve, that not only vastly improve the look of your vehicle, the service purpose as well. Serve as a purpose as well. I'm struggling today. Anyway, so they're available to dress up the engine and the engine bay. They have kits ready to go for your specific application. Drop them a line, tell them Jay sent you, tell them the hard parking podcast sent you. Last week I was sick. I had the flu. Missed Tuesday and Wednesday. And I still don't feel good. I mean, I still don't feel perfect. Like my chest still kind of hurts. I'm coughing a little bit. Took some uh, Mucinex cough medicine at work. I forgot I had it in my drawer. And I drank it like a G. It's like those movies. You know, those movies where, where they have to take pills and they never take them with water. They just open up the, the little canister. of It's always prescription medicine. And they're just killing it like fucking Skittles. Yeah, so that's me and my cough medicine. You just kind of open it up and you and you drink out of it like a flask at work. Didn't say it was drowsy, but 20 minutes later, I started getting super fucking tired. Super tired. Coming up, we're going to be joined by Adam Kiss Photography as the Instagram profile highlight of the week. Be right back. Before we get to Adam Kiss, I'm going to talk about my rental car of the week. This is Jay's rental car of the week. Actively looking for sponsors. I can slide your name in before I do this. And I think... Selfishly, this is probably my favorite or one of my favorite segments because I think I'd said before that I tried to record a bunch of video and do Jay's Rental Car of the Week YouTube channel and I hated the way I looked, hated the way I sounded. I didn't think it was funny, so I scrapped the whole project and that was after doing it with 12 cars. So now I get to do it here. So what I have this week is I have a black, I don't know the technical term because, you know, it could be like space black. Anyway, so I have a 2019 Ford Edge Titanium Edition EcoBoost. It's got black leather interior. The interior smells funny. I know I just said that with the last one. Um, this thing has 15,000 miles, which you know how I feel about that on a rental car. That is a lot of miles for a rental car, especially to place like National. But I couldn't place the smell of the car at first, and now I think I know what it is. First off, let me finish describing the interior of the car. So it's black leather interior. Uh, the infotainment system is really good. That's one thing I think Ford does a really good job of over the years. I mean, I've had Ford Explorers, 
when I'm desperate, I'll get a Ford Fusion. You know, I've had a couple Ford Edges. I've had the Ford Flex. And the interiors are always, the infotainment center system is always pretty good. Probably because it has CarPlay. You guys know how I feel about that. But even without it, you know, even back in 2012, I thought that the Ford Fusion that I had driven for one of my jobs for a week was, once I figured out how to use it, was pretty good. This is no different. The interior of the Ford Edge, I think, is really nice. Now, some reviews say it's dated and basic. Personally, CarPlay aside, I think it's nice. The interior is black. The seats are brown, like Crayola brown. It's really the only color brown I know how to describe it. Some of the door trim is brown to kind of complement the seats. But anyway, so it smells. And you know what it reminds me of? I thought it was just a leather pleather smell, but it's not. It smells like a vehicle that's had a lot of dogs in it. And then it's been professionally cleaned and detailed because that smell is still kind of there. And the reason I say that is because my Infinity that I have at home, when I bought it off of somebody, I took it to a place, had it professionally cleaned, and they did like this pure air thing to it. It smelled perfect. A little while later, as we got into the winter, the interior started getting wet and it started getting this smell to it. And that's what this Ford Edge kind of reminds me of. Is I think, I mean, with 15,000 rental miles, chances are there's been plenty of dogs up in that bitch. Anyway, so the car from a styling aspect, it's visually, it's not my favorite thing to look at. It's kind of ugly. Um, it looks like some sort of like, I don't know, like a little Hyundai or a Kia SUV. Like a lot of times Ford, Ford SUVs, especially the Explorer, right? They kind of command presence. They look kind of badass outside of looking like a cop car, right? But you know, the Ford Edge and the Ford Flex looks like, I don't even know, it's like this box. Put some wheels on a Ford Flex, it looks kind of cool. Anyway, so this, the Ford Edge that I have, Titanium Edition, the thing kind of scoots. I was driving it hard because I was late for Taco Tuesday. I was driving it really hard the other day and it gets up. And I looked over and the only thing better than a Ford Flex, I'm, I'm sorry, than a Ford Edge Titanium is the ST. Had an ST next to me, he didn't want none of that. The car does some weird shit. So you put the headlights on automatic and a lot of your cars probably do this. I wouldn't know because I drive a 1997 car. We have a 2011 car and we have a 2007 car. All right. So we're too poor to have a brand new car. But this vehicle, you put it on automatic, the, he the headlights, and as it starts to get just a little dark, I notice the, the brights, they kick on. That's good and you're out in the middle of nowhere. When you're driving through the city, then they flake, then it looks like, you're flashing people that are coming the other way. So they're probably looking at me like, this motherfucker keeps flashing me. So that's kind of annoying. So I turned the automatic light feature off this week because I don't want to get pulled over and get my ass beat. The audio is, you know, before I go, okay, so hold on, hold on. I have a gripe that I haven't griped about yet. And it's amazing that I haven't griped about it through all of these reviews. People, please do me a favor. When you're renting a, you know, don't do me a favor, do yourself a favor. When you rent a vehicle, the first thing you do is, or the first thing you shouldn't do is go straight to the audio settings and adjust the bass, treble, and mid. Here's what happens. If you crank everything up, then you might as well just left it right in the middle where it was. Stupid shit. Fucks the audio up. And if you leave everything in the middle and you take the bass from 5 to 10, it sounds stupid. Like, what are we doing? Stop it with that shit. I thought somebody did that with this Ford Edge. They didn't. It just has a banging system. I had to turn it down a little bit. But that's something that's always irked me. Like people, stop doing that shit. So annoying. Incredibly annoying. So how's the vehicle drive? 
I feel like it picks up every little bump in the road, like little road, little like like little bumps, you know, little imperfections in the road. So from that aspect, it kind of reminds me of like a Kia Rio or something, like something that's 100% entry level. This SUV, the way they have it trimmed out, it kind of feels like a kind of a luxury, like a mini budget luxury SUV. But I can't say budget that much because it's like $36,000 for the Titanium Edition. I mean, it's on the higher end cost-wise of other vehicles in its class. But if you're going to do that, you might as well give it a super soft suspension. Things that contribute to road noise are obviously tires. But just to be sure, I went to Edmunds and I looked and they had some of the same complaints about you feel every bump. Aesthetically, though, other than the outside being ugly as fuck, in my opinion, if you have a, you know, Ford Edge, more power to you. Interior looks pretty roomy. It looks roomier than my personal SUV at home. Doesn't look as cool from the exterior. But the interior looks roomy. You know, the back seats have plenty of room. It's got good storage in the back. If you were to lay the seats down, you'd have even better storage. It's got a full front to rear panoramic roof. So it's got the whole panel roof. You know, visibility, I was reading that some of the visibility on the Ford Edge is, you know, you can't really see well out of it. Yeah, you can. It's got a big fucking windshield. The A-pillar is thick, but the way you're sitting, you know, like, I think some of these car reviewers in not realize that if you reach over to the left and you reach down, there's this little button and you can raise the seat if you can't see. You can tilt the seat if you can't see. You can lower the seat if the seat's too high. So when you adjust it, you see everything. Now, you can't really see as well out of the back window. You have a rear view camera and you shouldn't be looking out of your back window when you're driving forward anyway. It also has a built-in charge pad. So you don't have to plug your phone in unless you want to use, you know, Apple or if you want to use the Android thing or the CarPlay. It doesn't have over-the-air CarPlay, which is a thing. Some vehicles have it. Probably nothing I'll ever rent anytime soon will have that. But you can put your phone down there and just have it charge. You don't need a cord. As long as your phone obviously has that little, the cute charger thingy in it. Gas mileage is pretty good. Like I said, the car kind of darts around when you're in a a hurry. Would I rent this vehicle again? Yeah, maybe. It's fine. Would I buy the vehicle? No, because I think it's ugly. It's got some ugly angles. They've had some nicer looking Ford Edges, you know, in the past. I just don't like this one. There's other SUVs that are nicer looking. I know looks not everything, but just trying to be honest and give the same review that I give on on every every one of these vehicles. But um, if you had an opportunity to get a 2019 Ford Edge, it's better than like the Cherokee Compass. You know, I keep going back to that. You know, is it better than the Volkswagen Touareg that I had? Maybe. I'd have to drive the Touareg again because the Touareg sounds like a remote control car. So, you know, this thing definitely has more power than 90% of the smaller SUVs I've ever had, except for maybe the Audi Q3. But the Audi Q3, don't get me started on that. Don't get me started on the Audis, okay? But it wasn't bad. It also has the auto shutoff. You guys have heard me complain about that before. The last few vehicles, interestingly enough, that I've rented haven't had it. I thought every vehicle had to have it. I've had a Charger recently. I've had the Challenger recently. I forgot what I had before I had either of those. Oh, yeah, the Chevy Malibu. Was it a Malibu? The Chevy Impala. So I don't think the Impala had it. Yeah, I went three vehicles in a row. They didn't have it. But guess what? The Ford has it. It's a pain in the ass. When I come back, we'll talk to Adam Kiss. But before that, I'll give you my thoughts on the uppity Willie T. Rib story. Before we get to the 
Instagram profile highlight of the week. I just wanted to talk a little bit about, and I teased this earlier, I want to talk a little bit about Uppity, the Willow T. Ribs story documentary. Again, like I said, it's very well done. And like I said earlier, we're going to cover this in the next podcast with guest from Last Airbrand. He's a huge racing fan. I put this on him and told him to check it out because I think he would appreciate it from a racing aspect and a historical aspect. One of the things that uh, that just kept shocking me were the date stamps in this documentary. You know, we're introduced to to him at a young age, but as far as trying to be a professional driver, it all started really in 1977. And this story spans from basically 1977 to 1993. Now, as I'm stepping through watching this documentary, I'm thinking about other things that were going on in the world. You know, how old was I at the time? You know, what are some other things in sports? Because I always thought that, you know, and maybe a little ignorant on my on my half, but sports unites people. And hobby also unites a lot of people. You know, so, uh, you know, I go to car shows. And during the time near the car show, everybody leaves some, you know, most of their bias outside of the show. You watch motorsport racing. You know, there's a lot of competition in motorsports between people, but the world's problems, the world's social issues, all you ever see on TV are sponsorships and hardcore competition. People were waiting for him to fail. They were waiting for him to fail. All they're looking for is confirmation of their beliefs that you don't belong. So I'm watching this thing and there's names that I recognize. I'm like, oh, wow, like this guy is... I can't, I can't think, but but help, but to make kind of the parallel from a from from who he was running into important people aspect as far as you know, it's like it's like Forrest Gump. So you're watching Forrest Gump, and you're like, oh, well, that's Apple, or oh, he started the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company, you know, like funny little things. Oh, he met the president, he mooned the president. Forrest Gump, for being who he was, as they stepped through the movie, had some interactions with a lot of people, a lot of famous people. You know, it's tongue-in-cheek, kind of funny. So when you're watching this, you're seeing names pop up. Paul Newman. And I think that's where this came from is because Adam Carolla produced this. Adam Carolla is a huge fan of Paul Newman Racing, owns most of his race cars. He has bought them, you know, through his success. He's bought these cars, and he races cars. Adam Carolla races cars, you know, in celebrity races, um, for sport, Monterey Classics, and he's... Seems to be pretty good. You know, there's names in here. David Hobbs. I've met David Hobbs. I've had drinks with David Hobbs. Willie would was a teammate of Hobbs. They had a big rivalry as teammates. Alan Sir Jr. You know, you hear words like, you hear names like Michael Andretti. You know, the other uncers. It's just amazing. You're like, holy shit. Like, these are, you know, Jack Roush. You know, Jack Roush has a significant. He used to race for Jack Rouse Racing. There's just so many things. Like I urge you guys to go watch this. Watch it before the next podcast comes out because we're going to get into it. And there's some shit that happened. It's racist as shit. But I think the reason why I was so amazed with it is because I'm multiracial. I mean, you guys know that, that know me. And I think I've experienced some unique things that I wanted to kind of talk about. Because again, this is Black History Month and I'm going to Kind of lay some things out there. Like a lot of people know me through cars, but you don't know me. And there's fewer people who know me. And then for those of you who listen to this podcast, 
you're going to get a chance to know who I am. And for those of you who have listened to every episode so far, I think you kind of know who I am because I share stories about my life. But I haven't really shared anything of controversy. I just kind of talk about, you know, bitch about getting upgraded to first class, you know, bitch about Starbucks, you know, Applebee's sucks, still sucks. I had it recently, though, by the way. And I'm just amazed because I've said this before on a podcast, you know, I was adopted. I have a Vietnamese mother. Most of my life, I don't really know what else I was mixed with, but I knew I was at least 50% Vietnamese. Now, the assumption was black and Vietnamese, but I never knew until I did the ancestry recently. Because I got to a point where I didn't care, it was just my own curiosity. And I am 40% African American, but I'm 48% Vietnamese. That's a fact. And then all the other percentages. But I'll tell you what, even though I never really knew exactly what I was, I can tell you what I've been identified as or treated as. Never been treated like an Asian because I don't look like an Asian. But my Asian friends, once you find out, Asian people are great, right? Once, once they find out you're one of them, they'll do anything for you. They love you. But, you know, growing up in school, I've had, I've always had friends of different colors. You know, my parents are from Minnesota. You know, they're white. And we grew up in Garland, Texas. My brother's Korean, slight Asperger's. So you have me, my brother, and white parents growing up in the South. And I always wondered, you know, and especially watching this, watching this documentary that takes place mostly in the South. You know, it makes me wonder, you know, what did my, how did people look at my parents when they're walking around with us as kids? I never felt comfortable in my own skin. You know, I'd, I'd written it, I, you know, as far as like to display my emotions before I started getting in trouble, because I did get in trouble quite a bit as a, as soon as I got out of high school, but I used to write lyrics. And one of the lyrics I wrote was, an outcast of the whites with friends I didn't feel white, right, and blacks wouldn't accept me because my parents were white. And through me listening so much to Tupac, he kind of told me to write how you feel, to write through your experiences, because that's how people are relatable. Don't sensationalize your life's experiences. So nothing I ever wrote in lyrics was to seem more grand or to portray a reality that I wasn't living. And I always had friends. I had white friends, had black friends, had Asian friends. Finding friends was never the issue for me as a kid. And kids are cruel. I mean, I had my fair share of mean shit said to me, said about me, even if it had nothing to do with the color of my skin. But kids are cruel. But I've always been fortunate. I've had good friends of all colors. I've had good friends with good parents. But this documentary just had me sit back and thinking, like, how many times have I been somewhere and people have, like, looked at me a certain way or I felt it? 1978, 1979 through the 80s. By then, we already have, by the, by the time 1988 comes around, Jerry Rice is a god. Michael Jordan is a god. You know, Deion Sanders and Barry Sanders and Magic Johnson and, you know, all these other athletes in these major sports, you know, Jackie Robinson in baseball, that's just long. I mean, that's, it's history. It's just how it is. And when you watch this documentary, they didn't want him. They didn't want Willie T. Ribs in, in auto, auto racing. You know, he goes over to England and, you know, kicks ass and he, do, he does Formula 4 and he dominated Formula 4. But what happens is once you go from Formula 4 to Formula 3, now you've got to get sponsorships. Nobody touched him. Comes back home, works for his father. Goes to Long Beach Grand Prix. You know, he finishes Long Beach Grand Prix or Formula Atlantic. Doesn't get a shot. 
You know, he gets brought in in 1978, invited to go to NASCAR by a guy named Humpy Wheeler, which he calls the Blonde Don King. He's a promoter, Charlotte, North Carolina. Invites him to the NASCAR event called the World 600. And this is in 1978. People lost their shit at, I mean, you, no, no, you're thinking, yeah, it's NASCAR, duh, you know, redneck country. Yeah, but this is 1978. Everything, there's no segregation. Everything's supposed to be on its way. The old adage is the Civil War is dead, but still smoldering. Welcome to NASCAR. I'll try not to get off base too much, but I have a lot of thoughts about all this stuff. And I have a lot of thoughts with society and racism and all that bullshit that's been going on. Black people are racist, too. Asian people are racist, too. Mexicans are racist, too. Like, it's not just white people that are racist. Like, racist does not mean you have to be one color. It means you don't like others of different colors. So let's just get that out of the way. But some of the things they were saying, and this is an explicit podcast, but one of the things they said was, if this nigger races, he may not leave alive. I mean, these are things that were being told to this Humpy Wheeler guy. And eventually he has to pull the plug. Because we know that NASCAR is in the South, but... Man, 1978. You know where I was in 1978? Georgia. That's right. I was a little little ass kid. Savannah, Georgia. So stepping through, you know, you get in the mid-80s, like I said, in the early 90s. And he's still, whether it's Indy, whether it's NASCAR, you know, whether it's the Trans Am series. And make no mistake, along the way, he's he had supporters too. But from the vast majority. Just people didn't want him there. And I was just so blown away about, you know, through all his success and people still wouldn't touch him. Now, he was at times uncoachable and kind of a problem guy. He had a little edge to him, as he should. To know that you see things happen to... How many times have you watched Sports Center and the drivers run up to each other and start punching the shove each other because someone got cut off? If he had any disagreements with people, he would get suspended from the sport. I just, I just couldn't believe you know, some of the shit that happened. So in 1991, 1992, you know, I'm still in school. And being into cars now, first off, I have friends of all ages. I have friends that are from the deep south. You know, I have a lot of white friends that are from the deep south. I have a lot of older friends through hobby, cars. And I feel like, I believe that, you know, they always say that people don't change. And I I disagree with that. I say people can change. It's just like the last podcast or a couple podcasts ago. It's like, is, is it important what people think about you? Most people will say, no, it's not important what people think about you. And you know me, I say it absolutely is important. It should be important. You should care what people think about you to a certain extent. So I'm watching this, this documentary and as it wraps up in 93, I'm like, okay, well, I was still in high school. Guys, I've had some shit happen to me in my life and some of it I put on myself and a lot of it, some of it had to do with racial profiling. Graduate high school, May 1994, out the door in 94. My buddy comes over, shaves my head. So now, this is the first time I've been bald. Now, I had kind of wavy hair. It made it mysterious. You like you really couldn't tell what I was, you know, once I got it up, up until high school because my hairstyle. Google John Cicada in the 90s, and my hair was kind of like John Cicada as the singer. Real confusing. Shaves my head. I do the thing, you know, teenager, you know, get the gold you know, necklace and... Go out and get a pager, get my ears pierced. Yeah, this is me. And so I looked the part. I mean, I'm 
people just I, I go from people not knowing who I am or what, you know what race I am to automatically just assuming I'm African American. Everybody like my world changed. It was crazy. Society's weird, man. And I'm not going to say when I first did that, it wasn't like all of a sudden people like didn't like me. It seemed like I was cool all of a sudden. Started getting invited to more parties. Started getting, you know, immediately accepted by by everybody. It wasn't like, I don't know, what is he? What is he? It was crazy. I was, it was well received. But also what came with that is, you know, I grew up in Garland, Texas. You know, so the police were a whole lot more likely to pull me over and look at me suspicious. And I've been in police cars before for doing absolutely nothing. Let me tell you a story. It was in 1995. I was in, uh, I was doing a travel job, multi-level marketing. Everyone's done that. Everyone should. You know, I think everyone should try multi-level marketing at least once. So you burn through all your friends, your relatives, their friends, and complete strangers. Because you learn a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about people when you try to sell them with some shit they absolutely don't want. The multi-level marketing that I worked for was called like World Perfume. So what did we do? It's one of those things where they're like hiring. You can make all this money. And so you show up and you're in this you know, this room and it's all legit, like in a sense. Right? People are making money. They have LLC. They have whatever they need. They're hustling you. I don't remember filling on W2, W4 actually. Now that I'm an adult, think it back. So you get in this room, they get you on the big whiteboard and they got all their successful salespeople that come in and talk, you know, because everybody, you can, you can work your ass off and make money no matter what it is. And I remember there's one guy and he had an NSX, man, a black one. Forgot about that until right now telling the story. And he's one of their most successful guys from out of town, but he did it like everybody else. You write on the board, you recruit three people. If they sell this amount, you sell this amount, you spend three people. Before you know it, you're selling so much, you can open up your own local office and start bringing in people like me, desperate people want to make money. And so basically, people bust their ass working for you for at least a week. Most people burn out after three weeks and quit. In that three weeks, you're going to get the best that they got. And it's all profit for you, baby. They're barely scraping. So with this job, you show up and they break, they, so you have this big room, they break you down in like eight groups. Each group has a team leader, which is their top salesperson that week. And they grab, I don't remember how many of us. I think there was probably eight of us per team. And what you do is you pair up with somebody else on your team. And for that week, you travel somewhere in the general geographic region. So this was Texas. So you might go to West Texas. You might go to Oklahoma. You might go to Hobbs, New Mexico. You might go to Louisiana. And you're staying with those people in like a Motel 6 or whatever all week. And all you do every day is you get up early in the morning with one of the other guys or gals. You grab a car and you're gone all day. You have to call in. You have to. What you basically have to do is you have to go business to business. And you have to bum rush people in a parking lot. Hey, excuse me, what kind of perfume do you like to wear? And they tell you their favorite and you show them all your designer perfumes that smell just like the real thing. And you're supposed to sell these things for like 28, 29 bucks. And you have to turn in 20 and you keep the rest for your expenses. So you're your food, your gas, whatever, your hotel. But the thing is, it's impossible. Well, I can't say impossible because some people did it. It was extremely difficult because if you're running a small town, what you do is you find out that three months ago, somebody else was running the same town doing the same shit you were doing. And they sold it to them to make their numbers for 20 bucks. So I'm sorry. So you had to turn in $19 out of every bottle. 
So what would happen is in order to make your numbers, you would sell a bottle for 20 bucks. You would make $1 off that sale. So if you sold 20 in a day, you're a badass. You were a certified badass if you could sell 20 bottles during a day. If you could sell 40 bottles of perfume, and again, you have all these different scents, you were a fucking animal. But if you sell <laughs> 20 to 40 bottles a day at 20 bucks, you've made 20 bucks that day. You've made 40 bucks that day. This wasn't a base plus commission. That's what you made. I could tell stories about this all day because I got some fucked up stories. So anyway, we're in Paris, Texas. And I remember with this different group this week, we went into a McDonald's and they wouldn't serve us because there was two black people in the group, myself and another guy. This was 1995. Paris, Texas is known for dragging a black man through the streets. And obviously he was dead after they dragged him like behind a truck. You think about that right now. We're in 2020. 1995 seems like eons ago, but it really isn't. And you have the, the riots of the 60s, 50s, segregation, different water fountains. And then we live in a culture where people want everything now. So you got all these old people that are getting fired for saying shit. Like, I mean, my mother-in-law, they're older. They're older Spanish people. They're from a different, different time. Their ideologies, they're not PC, okay? Incredibly homophobic, still. Now, we're not talking race. We're just talking homophobia. But like I said, there's older, there's older, I know a lot of my Asian friends, their parents are racist as fuck. A lot of Latino people hate black people. A lot of black people hate Latino people. And we're not that far removed from the 60s. And that's what I keep telling people when they're like, well, this guy's a racist. That guy's a racist. So that old person, this, it's like, man, it doesn't, it's not going to start with them. It starts with us and our children and our children's children. Because it may seem like a long time ago, but let's break down the history of the United States. How old is the United States? Several hundred years old. When I went to Rome, I was stepping foot inside a building that was made by people thousands of years ago. So you look at the map of the world historically, what is, what is 50 years to, the, to history? Nothing. You know, some of the great empires lasted hundreds of, some of them thousands of years. This country is not even 500 years old, not even close. I mean, 1776. Is that 300 years? Give or take. We're nothing yet. So people have to understand, like, we're not that far away from super racist times. And going back to believing people could change, there's people, some of you, some of your parents, you know, I mean, there's kids right now that are racist as hell, but I was, I was a wreck when I was a little kid. You know, there's things that I said on racism aside, there's things that I said, things that I believed in. I sure as hell don't believe in that now as a 44 year old, people can change and you change based on what you experience, what you see, what you're educated to, what you choose to educate yourself on and you choose to adjust. I may have friends, I may have car buddies that are older than me that they may have got, they may have came up using the N-word like it was nothing in a derogatory, malicious way. And that may have been them 40 years ago. But that's absolutely not them now. Like they would be embarrassed to see themselves back then. I did some shit when I was a kid. I'd be, I'd kick my own ass if I can go back in time. And I feel like people can change. 
Not always. Um, but in watching this documentary and just kind of stamping it in time, you know, there's people in this documentary that probably felt a certain way that don't feel that way or know that they can't feel that way anymore. It was just amazing. So anyway, going back to Paris, Texas, they wouldn't serve us. This was 1995. And we went across the street. We went to Taco Bell and they happily served us. And they were like, yeah, the people over at McDonald's, like this is a racist ass town and they're prejudiced as hell. That same week I was going through uh, Arkansas. We went north to a small town called um, Cabot. C-A-B-O-T. Cabot, Arkansas. Outside of Little Rock. A lot of black folks in Arkansas. Arkansas. At least in the 90s. Very prejudiced state. Very prejudiced. Now, I'm from Dallas, Texas. Basically. It's a city where people move there from everywhere else. You don't, you're not around that nearly as much. You go to small town USA, it's still there. If you go to a small black town and you're white, they don't want you there. You go to a small white town and you're black, there's people in town that don't want you there. Not everybody. Just like this documentary. Willie T. Ribs had a lot of racial pressure. He said he went to one driver's meeting. None of the drivers even would look at him because he was black. But he also had supporters that were white. Angels, essentially. So there's there's that out there. You know, like you can't paint the world in a broad stroke with your brush because there's always exceptions to the rule. So we go to Cabot, Arkansas, me and this guy from South Dallas. And I'm ignorant. You know, I'm old am I like 19. We're going through this town. We decided to stop at a grocery store. This is town that one of those small towns that kind of the, the freeway runs right through it. And we're in this grocery store it's called Knights. And everybody, we're walking around. I don't even remember what they're there we're there for, but everyone's just staring at us. Like staring at us. And we're like, fuck. Why are people just staring at us? Like I don't like they were like everybody in this store. Ninety percent of the people can you imagine walking through a grocery store and everyone's just kind of looking at you? Let that sink in for a second. Most of you have no idea what that's like. I felt it. We go to Taco Bell across the street, get something to eat. People are just staring at us at Taco Bell. The employees, the customers. This is 1995. What was going on in 1995? The Cowboys are wrapping up their, their dynasty. 1995. Deion Sanders and the San Francisco 49ers. That was 1995. Michael Jordan was just getting ready to come back from his first three-peat. 1995. Now think about the scenario in this town, Cabot, Arkansas. 1995. I'm not talking the 60s or 70s or 80s. I'm talking 1995. My car, the Acura NSX, had been out for four years. 1995. So we get out, we, we go to this other little cafeteria and we're like a Luby's, you know, like, like, like Luby's or the, or the okay, you know, the corral, golden corrals, those type of cafes. They're real popular in the nineties. So we went into one and there was a lady in there and this cafe, it wasn't very busy at all. And she's like, we kind of asked her about it because she was the first person that had talked to us in town. We, but then now we've been in town for like 30 minutes. The first person to talk to us. And she said she moved there, this white lady. She moved there 
in the mid 80s, 10 years prior, she said they were still hanging black people in that town. She told us we needed to get out of town by dark. If she was, she's like, if I were you guys, I would get the hell out of here by dark. This is not a nice town. And I wanted to start some shit, honestly. I was like, fuck these motherfuckers. Fuck them. Let's handle up. Let's make sure they remember us. And the guy I was with was like, nah, man. Because the lady said there's an old black couple in town that everybody leaves them alone. And if we do some shit, it may come down on them. I'll never forget that. I'm like, you know what? You're right. You're right. But while we were in there talking to her, there's a pickup truck. Like a Silverado. And they're outside and they're driving around this cafeteria that we're in with the Confederate flag hanging on the back. Like, no shit. I'm not making this up. I swear to God. Because they knew we were in there. That that was their intimidation. You know, we we weren't yelling like, you know, go home, go home or none of that. But they were just, they were there to intimidate us. They didn't like us being there. That was in 1995. Had another thing happen to me in 1995. Doing the same job. I was in a small town, Oklahoma, during the day. Now, I never was the kind of walk around with my pants hanging off my ass. Like, I just never did that. I always dressed kind of nice. With a different guy. And we were going through small town, Oklahoma. And we stop at, a, like, a big convenience store. Kind of like one of those last ones you stop at before you leave town. So I'm standing outside by his car. There's a black Eagle Talon. 10.30 in the morning. So the first time, this first story in Cabot, Arkansas, I was like 5 or 6 in the afternoon. It was 10 o'clock in the morning. It's the last stop before we left town. I was like, all right, you go in and try to sell these people. I'll just be out here by the car. You know, he's like, yeah, okay. I'm out there leaning by the car. You know, people go by. People park, you know, kind of looking. I remember this truck pulled up. It looks like they came from the fair because they had a horse trailer. Nice family comes out, red pickup truck, red trailer. How you doing? Yeah, good. How are you guys doing? Good, fine. You know, little kid says hi. You know, so were you guys coming from the fair or something? They're like, yeah, we had a, we were at the f- county fair. I was like, okay, cool. They go inside, think nothing of it. Five minutes later, police officer pulls up. Now, we're talking small town, small town. Guy has a, has a trucker hat on. Happy birthday. This is his birthday. Ask me, you know, what I'm doing. Tell him I'm waiting for my uh, my friend who's inside. Nice cop. Asked me for my driver's license ID. He runs my ID. and He's like, okay. He goes, well, the reason why I stopped by is because he straight up told me, those people who were in that pickup truck that went to the fair, they called the cops on me because I was outside looking sketchy. So, yeah, I've seen it. I felt it. I don't hate police. And I don't hate people. To that, because I know not everybody's like that. You know, not everybody's like that. But I've experienced it. And then watching this documentary about Willie T. Ribs, it's like took me back there. I'm like, man, I'm thinking in motorsports, if you're safe in sports, you're safe in hobby. But here he was, man, getting this shit. And I was just blown away, disappointed. And I can't wait to talk to, you know, Eric about it in the next episode. To kind of get his perspective. Because, man, it's amazing. It was just like, you know, we haven't really gotten as far as everybody wants us, wants to think that we have as a society. And I think understanding that will better arm you and save you from the disappointment when you hear something or you see something. 
and there's pre- probably people that I've run into during my life. Like I was in Michigan, right? <clears throat> I lived in Michigan 15 years. Never really blatantly experienced. I've never blatantly experienced anything like I experienced back in the mid nineties growing up where I grew up since then. I'll, I'll tell you that. But watching this documentary gives me pause. Like, wow, I wonder how many times I was around people and that's what they were thinking because you think you're safe with cars, but think about it. NASCAR, automotive, you know, and you go to these car shows. You ever go to a classic car show? Who's there? Right? I mean, just kind of look around. 90% stereotype, stereotypical. And I'm not talking the same people that are at a, you know, a high-end car show where you can have people with the same age. Like, there's a certain look. You know, it's like the bikers, like the Harley gangs. They have a certain look. And that's not too far removed from the lifestyle of the Dirty South. It just isn't. It just isn't. Not everybody feels like that. Not everybody is a racist, no matter the color of your skin. But there's still a lot of them out there. And I think we need to understand that. And we can't be okay with it, but we can't act so offended when something happens. Like so appalled, like, oh, I can't believe this. We'll believe it. It's 2020. It's not 2056. 1960 wasn't that far ago. 1995 was not that long ago. So when I'm in Michigan, and I'm at these classic car shows, I can't help now but to think back. Like, man, you know, how many people wish when they saw me that they, they had disdain that I was even there? Because they can't drop those biases because they didn't change. And then it's also... You know, how many people that I know now used to be like that, but they've seen the light. They've seen the ways they progress with the times. Let's take racism out of this. Let's talk about homosexuality. Everybody was a faggot back in the day. I remember the first time I used that word to describe somebody, I wasn't quite sure even what it meant. It was just like, okay, I was in middle school. I came home and talking to my mother, talking about one of the, my classmates, like, oh, he's a fag. Mom said, don't say that. Do you even know what that means? I said, no. She goes, yeah, no, never say that. Never call anybody that word. It's not a nice word. She was teaching me, and this was 1985, 86. And you go back and you watch comedy. Like, it was a thing to make fun of back then because people didn't understand it. And now, no one uses it. I mean, there's still kids who use that. And every time I read it, I'm like, what's wrong with these people? This guy's a faggot. And I'm like, Jesus. Like, what? Really? But you don't see it in comedy. You don't see it used anywhere other than these stupid kids in these forums, you know, are messing with each other. But it's like times change. And, you know, even Eddie Murphy came out and he apologized for his language towards homosexuals back when he did Eddie Murphy Raw and Eddie Murphy Delirious. Back then it was funny. It made people laugh. It doesn't make people laugh anymore. And racism is the same thing, regardless if you're black and you hate white people, if you're white and you hate black people. I don't know. But anyway, so watching the Willis T. Ribs thing, sorry to sorry to go there, but I just wanted to kind of tell you guys we're watching this documentary, Uppity, is what it's called on, on Netflix. And why is it called Uppity? Because that's what they called him. They called him an uppity nigger. And he loved it. He embraced it. He says he embraced it. Like, I've been called the N-word before, and I didn't embrace it, but I didn't fight either. I got called the N-word in Minnesota. So it's not just a dirty South thing. One of my favorite cousins who's no longer with us anymore, little cousins, he died in a terrible head-on collision 
you know, right after high school. But he thought the world of me. So my mom, my mom's from a very small town in Nevis, Minnesota. My mother loves me. I'm not talking shit about my mother or her town, but she's from a small town in Minnesota. At some point in her life, she may have been that person too, because my mother is almost 80. So think about that. And I'm up there in that small town in the late 90s, hanging out with my little cousin. This is probably 95, 96. You know, we're in the we're in the town hall or the little like the main whatever with the arcade and the ice cream shop and. People were one of one of the kids was upset because I was there. He was calling me the N word, and they were going outside. Why is that in here? You know, my little cousin was about to kick his ass, but he got his ass kicked. By the way, I beat Double Dragon. I almost beat her on one quarter. You guys remember Double Dragon? I fell into the spikes at the very end, and I had to put another quarter in to beat it. But I almost beat Double Dragon on one quarter, so I'll never forget that. But yeah, I mean, I've seen it. I've been it. And like I said, watching this documentary. Just kind of hammering at home. It's like, I don't think we've changed as much as people think we've changed. But individuals absolutely can change. And so if I find out that people that I hang out with, older people, used to be like that, all I know is they're not like that now. And I used to be a certain way. And I'm not like that now. Coming up, we're going to talk to Adam Kiss, Adam Kiss Photography. All right, it's time for the Instagram profile highlight of the week. As you know, this is my favorite segment because it gives me an opportunity to highlight some of my favorite accounts on Instagram. doesn't matter if it's car related, hobby related, video game, anime. I don't give a shit. You know, last week we had fucking pilot who flies Cessnas around all over the place. So the Instagram profile highlight of the week is sponsored by NSX Channel. At NSX Channel on Instagram, your number one source for all intersex content, whether it's bone stock OEM or looks like a fighter jet like mine or as a rocket bunny kit, doesn't matter. This week, my Instagram profile highlight week is Adam Kiss Photography. Adam, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Hard Parking Podcast. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate the invite. Yeah, of course. I'm going to talk about a, a couple things. I kind of teased this in the intro of the podcast. So you have a magazine you're doing and you also do photography. So let's talk about your photography for page first, and that's at Adam Kiss, one word, dot photography on Instagram. Sure. We've shot together before, maybe a year, year and a half ago. And one of the things I really enjoyed about your style is the composition, the way you framed it. What is your motivation for that style? Um, that, that was actually sort of early on in my photography journey when you and I shot. And uh, to be honest, it's still one of my favorite cars. Uh, and I think the proof of that is the fact that I have a giant tapestry-sized uh, blanket with the picture that we took in front of the castle on it in my home office. So, you know, that's definitely one of the most memorable experiences I've had, especially because if you remember, uh, it was raining. So we had to make do with the rain and I had to kind of keep my equipment covered. Uh, and we also got that little video of you doing a poll, which I didn't expect. <laughs> so a lot of cool <laughs> stuff happened. That was a good time. Uh, as far as what got me into photography originally, actually, uh, I learned about uh, this guy whose name is Pepper Yandel, and he's an automotive photographer who started in Dallas. Uh, now he lives in Dubai, and he's shooting for, you know, sheiks and princes and just really top-end stuff. And I saw him on a TV show, uh, and I thought, wow, this is incredible. I, I had no idea that that was even a job at the time, was being a car photographer. Uh, so that kind of lit a, lit, a, lit a little spark in me. Uh, and I figure, you know, if I if I got even the same general ballpark as as him eventually, as of right now, I guess technically you could you could say that it's 
sort of a hobby because I'm not making a full-time income from it. Uh, but my long-term goal uh, definitely is to do automotive photography, especially for high-end exclusive clients, uh, you know, dealers, automotive companies, like performance shops, things like that. Uh, that would be the actual goal in, in the long term is to do this as a full-time living. So you said something interesting about that. You said right now you're just kind of doing it as a hobby. Many, 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 many podcast episodes ago, Brando and I had discussed photography, photographers, when to approach them, you know, when to wait for them to approach you. And I think you probably understand that, you know, while you're doing it as a side gig, as a hobby, you're just, you're doing it to perfect your craft. Exactly. So the way I look at it is um, shooting with someone like you, for example, or, or other people that have very unique, nice cars. A year ago when I started, I picked up a hand-me-down camera that my stepdad gave me with absolutely no idea how photography worked at all. Uh, so since then, I've basically just been working up from ground zero. So I think, first of all, it would be silly for someone that has no experience in something to expect payment. I think that's sort of delusional. Um, but more valuable than that, I think, than the money is the experience, like you said. So the fact that I can take a, a one-of-a-kind car like yours and add it to my working portfolio for future clients to see is a much bigger investment than the whatever amount of money you would have paid me to shoot with you in the first place. I completely understand that. One of my idols in media and in life, I listen to a show a lot. And one of the things he has said in the past, when he started, he would call in to the radio on a very popular radio show when he would just do this skit for free for years. And he said for a lot of people, and I'm not telling people that they have to work for free because equipment costs, but either you don't charge a lot or you just do it for the experience. And a lot of people who have a lot of success started off doing it for nothing. And eventually the money comes with the skill. So I think you already have a significant grasp on that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I try to keep that in mind. Is it, I mean, one way to look at it, right, is basically... Uh, I'm getting, I'm, I'm doing, I'm getting my education for free through, through you guys again. So, and like you said, the money will come eventually. So, so if I put myself in the shoes of someone that wants to hire a car photographer, I'm going to go and obviously look at their past work and see what they're capable of, but you can't build up that portfolio to show off your skill. You know, if you don't have any experience to start off with, and especially more important than, than how to use a camera, that's obviously, that's kind of the cost of admission is knowing how to use a camera, but the network of people that you have to meet in order to build the portfolio of cars. So people like you, people like the hundred and some odd people that I've met over the last year shooting cars, all those people each played a very essential part in, I now have something that's more valuable to show, uh, you know, everybody else. Now the world can see like, Hey, this is this is Adam Kiss. This is his work. This is what he can do. And then they can decide whether or not I'm worth their money. But I have to prove the fact that I'm worth paying for to start with. For you to say that, it's awesome to hear. But I, I kind of know you. You're a super humble guy. You're you're energetic. You're happy. You're you're doing it for the experience and to grow. But one of the things that you you shoot for practice, you shoot to build a portfolio, and you shoot to learn how to do some post processing. Again, I'm going to go back to the early episode that we had about photography. That's one of the things that we had talked about. When a photographer approaches us, like my schedule is, is super crazy. You you know that, right? Right, yeah. Photographers will ask me for photo shoot time, and I try to make my car available to any photographer. Now, when they say, hey, I'll shoot your car. Here's how much it's going to cost. I'm going to be like, eh, I'm not really looking for photos right now because I'm not looking for photos right now. Uh-huh. But when I am looking for photos, I reach out to a handful of people that have that portfolio. You as a photographer 
Adam Kiss Photography that we're talking to, Adam Photography on Instagram. You understand that you have to build that portfolio up for people like me or, you know, in serious clients down the road. And so the fact that you already know that and you get it, I think it puts you so many steps ahead of people who, you know, maybe they get some through networking, some super cool opportunities to shoot some super cool cars. Uh, but beyond that, you know, it's just people, people who want professional works, because here's the deal. I'm looking at a photo on your page of a black Mustang. And so when I'm looking for photos of when I'm specifically looking for photos, it's because a sponsor of mine needs photos. I'm not just going to take any photo. Do they have pictures that I can see myself using outside of Instagram? Mm. So do I want to use it as a wallpaper? Do I want to put it in my garage? Do I want to blow it up into a poster? You know, and those are the type of people that I typically go after, but I'll make my car available to almost anybody who, like your page, I could tell that you were serious about photography, even though you just started. I remember the conversation we had. I said, hey, I really like your framing. I really like the colors that you're using. You have a level of creativity that more experienced photographers typically don't have. So I knew you had a gift, at least of something worth giving my time to. Uh, I appreciate it. It definitely means a lot because I'm sure with a car like yours, you get constant, you know, messages about wanting people wanting to take pictures of it. So the fact that you said yes to me, whereas you might have not said yes to everyone, uh, that definitely means a lot. Like I said, I'll give people an opportunity, but I don't have a lot of time. You know, I'm I'm home two days a week. Uh, Another big thing is you live way on the west side. Yeah. The fact that you were willing to come with me, come to me. I was like, well, shit, if you're going to fucking drive an hour and a half, well, hell yeah, I will find the time for you, my friend. <laughs> yeah. You know, I will find the time. Yeah, you so know? It goes back to so, that commitment. Yeah. And so a lot of people, you know, because they probably think I brush them off. I don't brush anybody off. I just, I, I tell every photographer, I said, look, man, we can shoot. Hit me up later. Don't let me forget because I will forget. Yeah. These pictures um, that you took of the bulking beast and, and this landing girl, really good. And and even even this, uh, I think it's a Shelby or the white Mustang over with the with the blue racing stripes and, and oh, yeah, the horse the in horse. the background. I mean, that's beautiful. You know, that's 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 damn near editorial. So I mean, I think now now is like kind of a, a good segue. You mentioned you know reading magazines when you were when you were younger, uh, and uh, you know you brought up the, the magazine project that I've started recently. And that that what you just what you just described is basically exactly why I decided to start a magazine of my own is because what got me into into cars and what got me into loving cars originally is is like import tuner and all these like really neat magazines where you could go and open up and read the story of the car and the car's owner. You know what I mean? It's like a whole package, not just the pictures by themselves, which are great, but also the story of how the car got to be the way it is and who the person is, who the driver is behind the car. And I just, you know, you don't see those magazines just really don't exist in print anymore. Everything that used to be printed for the most part is going digital or already has. The beautiful thing about about the digital age is something like a digital magazine. Nowadays, you can make it a real like a multimedia platform because you have the pictures, but you can also add videos into these uh, interactive, basically PDFs is, is what you get. You know, you can get a magazine no where where it's laid yeah, it's laid out like you can you can flip through it. The pages will flip digitally, and then you, let's say I have a picture of your car or whoever's car, and they have a really nice exhaust on it, or, or it sounds just very unique. Well, it's one thing to look at the pictures, but what if you looked at the pictures and you clicked a little thumbnail on the magazine and it played the sound or played a video clip of it pulling down the street? 
then you get everything that you can want, you know, all, all, all about it in, in one spot. So I'm looking at this right now. So you just released owner's manual, January, 2020 issue one. Yep. And let me just say that when you sent the story to me, this is early last week, I believe, and I'm watching it and the, and it made me smile because man, you were just grinning <laughs> yeah. cheek to cheek telling everybody about this exciting project you've been working on. And it, it was just, it's just so cool to see somebody so excited about something that let's just call it what it is, man. It's a major personal achievement. It's an accomplishment. You know, you set a goal, you've achieved it. Owner's manual issue one. I see band of stangs in here. You know, I know those guys from the one auto, you know, yeah. they're big one auto people. Like what's the, ultimate goal behind owner's manual is it Arizona based starting off. Although I know there's a photo shoot in here from beyond Arizona. Like tell me about owner's manual. Tell me how you decided to go towards it knowing that, you know, like you just kind of covered this, what that print media is disappearing, but you still decided to do the digital format interactive PDF. So um, kind of going back to what we were saying about how I sort of miss good old car magazines, things that I used to love growing up. I figured maybe other people felt that way. And since I started last January doing the photography, so we're going on uh, just over a year now. I've met so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, it's kind of crazy to think about. But I've met so many cool people uh, because I don't focus on one specific type of car. So like I don't shoot only American muscle cars or I don't shoot only import cars. I noticed that there are so many different clusters of car people and, uh, you know, like different clubs. And also there are a million wrap shops and, and tuning shops and exhaust shops and, and detailing shops and all these different kind of spread out different places. So maybe I call you and say, Hey Jay, you have a recommendation for a wrap shop? And you say, Hey, yeah, I do. Here, go, go here. But maybe if I ask, you know, someone that drives a Mustang, maybe they have, they, those guys have like a wrap shop that they prefer. So really if I was going to go and kind of put my plan for the magazine into a nutshell and what it would be is I, I want to connect different types of car owners and also different shops, kind of make it like a central hub. Uh, let's say a new car club forms, you know, and they have like a decent number of members. They kind of want to get on the scene. Well, I could put a feature in the magazine and then that goes out to everybody that views it. And now all of a sudden they're on the map. That, that's like a neat thing for them. So really it's it's just, like you said, local. I really want to focus on the Arizona scene, uh, but just really bring together these different people that I've had the, pre- the pleasure of meeting over the last year. Did you do this entire thing on your own or did you get some, you know, professional help or what uh, so happened? Everything that's in the magazine is done 100% by me. So like the whole layout, all the writing, all the pictures, those are all mine, except for the pictures in the um, featured person of the month. So my featured person of the month uh, for the first issue was a local photographer. Uh, his name is Paxton, a uh, really cool guy. So I featured his work in his own section. So I did the layout and wrote up, you know, the questions that he sent me from my interview. Um, and then I featured his work and that's basically what I would do for the, for the person of the month is, um, for example, I have a, a makeup artist lined up who worked with me on all of my theme shoots for the seven sins. So she was there for all seven, helping me match the model models with the cars. And so if I didn't feature on her, then I'll probably display her makeup work and also, you know, the work that her and I did together in relation to cars. So it all ties back. The idea would be to grow the magazine to a point where it has enough leverage to where then sponsorship spots would be sought after and I wouldn't have to be searching for them necessarily, but maybe a performance shop wants to buy like a spread or like you said, a sponsor that really believes in the project that would provide some backing. That would be huge as well. 
but at this stage, um, again, we're at issue one. I'm going to keep uh, keep going and improving my own skills in whatever area I can, whether that's graphic design. Um, you know, obviously the photography is improving day by day. Um, you know, finding more interesting content and different types of segments to the magazine. So right now, my main focus is to do my best to build and grow the magazine, and then down the road, as it starts to build up steam, then then of course, yes, the next level would be things like sponsorships and paid spots and ads and things like that. Do you have thoughts of bringing in possibly other contributors or bringing in an editor and just saying, here's my content, here's what I want to say? Once it gets big enough, the plan is definitely to bring on more people, like a small staff, because, for example, uh, recording an interview with somebody, I have to go back through that, whatever, let's say 20 minutes of audio and then transcribe it. Well, once I, you know, grow the magazine, I can either outsource that or I can just bring someone on board that does the writing and then I can focus more on the photographer and the layout. Or maybe I hire somebody that just does like layouts and then I plug in my own pictures and the words. You, like you said, I think, yeah, you, uh, you were right. It, it, it did take a bit of uh, a, a, quite a bit of work. But the thing is about learning something new is now the next issue should go more smoothly just because I have when I started when I started this first issue. I had never used uh, Adobe InDesign before, which is what I used for the magazine layout. So all, all these things, the past year has just been basically uh, going from zero to where I am now. So from here on out, the momentum will only pick up because now I have a solid basis of knowledge and experience that I can build off of. Again, we're talking to Adam Kiss, Adam Kiss Photography. That's adamkiss.photography on Instagram. So what about distribution? So what are your plans? Like, how are you, how do you plan on distributing this? How are you, how do you plan on, on getting this into the hands of viewers? So basically um, right now uh, it being a digital platform, I have basically a list where I sign people that want the magazine have signed up. So one of the things that I try to live by when it comes to the photography for sure is always doing more than you're paid for. So even if somebody pays me, I always try to go more than what they expect to get. And the same thing would be true of something like signing up for the magazine, which at this stage, of course, is free. Naturally, I'm doing it um, just, you know, to help grow the grow the base and grow the brand, um, you know, but we'll see where that goes. But yeah, like you said, just distributing it digitally for now. And then I'm working on um, also sorting out how to get it physically printed. So my plan, um, sort of the next step, I guess we might as well talk about this as well, is to have different sure. tiers, yeah, different tiers of the magazine. So, if somebody wants, you know, just the, just the digital magazine, they want to flip through the pictures and read the articles, that's cool. That'll be like a that'll be a tier, you know, like starting tier. Cool, you get that. Well, let's say we have another tier where someone is really interested and really wants to. Sort one of the things that I think is cool about car magazines, or that I really enjoyed about them, is is collecting them, right? Like you see your little collection build up. It's like wow, here's like ten of them in a row, and it's cool to see. You know, it's a different colored, like different colored uh, spread on the front and a different car. But you can see there's a uniform, you know, line that runs through every issue. And I mean, I, this could be naive of me, but I really think that people still enjoy holding a physical thing. But we'll see. That'll that'll take some testing. You know, if that if that ends up not being the case and people don't show interest in ordering physical printed copies, then we'll stick to doubling down on the digital platform. There are people who do like the tangible aspect. I can see this in maybe some of the waiting rooms of some of our local shops and friends. Oh, that's good. In, yeah. in the Phoenix area, you know, so maybe you run off a print. Real quick before you go, I have a couple things for you. Yep. Number one, I'm new to your Instagram. 
how do I get the magazine? Where do I sign up? What I've done with the first issue is I've sort of uh, reached out to people, sent them direct messages, and then put it on my story like, hey, if you want to sign up, let me know, and I'll sign you up manually. But starting with the next issue is I'm just going to put a uh, simple link in my bio and post it somewhere on my page so it's easy to find where uh, anybody that wants to wants to receive the magazine, all they do is click on that one link and boom, it'll pop up a little window where you put in your email. That's it. I don't need any of your personal info, just your email. And then once you opt in, uh, I'll be able to send out the magazine. And that's very simply just for anti-spam laws. The question to be answered, and time will tell, is whether or not my specific flavor of photography and entertainment and writing is liked by enough people to make the magazine a viable product long term. But I, I, I'm going to do, uh, and this will be cool, I'll, I'll do a little verbal commitment to everybody here and to myself and to you. Uh, okay, I'm, everybody, everybody listen up. Yeah, everybody, hey, this is it, real talk. Uh, I'm 100% going to do one issue every single month for this year as a test. That's that's my minimum test period. So one issue every month uh, for 2020, and then we'll go from there. But I, if this first issue is any indication, I really have high hopes that this this could go places. And as I learn new techniques, boom, new issue. Well, that sounds really good, Adam Kiss. Um, I want to thank you for spending all this time to kind of talk about your hobby and also this awesome new magazine. I think it has a ton of potential. And, you know, if you market it a certain way, people are going to pick it up of all sorts of vehicle types, whether it's the East Valley Cruisers or a band of stings on the West Side or the One Auto Movement. You know, I think that uh, I think you have a really good thing going here. Um, I want to thank you for spending time. Again, if you guys want to follow Adam Kiss, which I strongly recommend, that's Adam Kiss Photography at Instagram, adamkiss.photography. Go to his website, Adam kissphotography.com and check out his owner owner's manual issue number one which he will make available shortly after this podcast if not by the time this podcast airs you'll be able to find it and if you can't find it just dm dm him or dm me i'll hook you up i'll I'll connect you awesome all right i'll talk to you later thank you for the time see you jay bye yep bye We want to thank Adam Kiss for joining us. So our new segment is, you know, what's the car question and the non-car question that I can answer for you guys via Instagram. So every week I ask this. So, you know, if you go to my Instagram at NA2NSX, you know, what's your car question and what's your non-car question? So I'll answer a couple of them here. Car question, not as many submissions that I would have liked, but there's some really good ones. So Catherine asks, with the new electric sports, you know, supercars coming out, how will the mod industry change? This is an excellent question. This is almost something I would bring somebody else in to discuss with me. I think some of the things, Catherine, and everybody else is, from a modification standpoint, you're talking anywhere from tires, wheels, to full engine mods. The full engine mods are really what you could be asking about. I don't know. Maybe there'll be supercharged battery packs, like for our phones. So if you take a regular fuel cell and you want it to recharge quicker, like, I know I don't have a Tesla. I've never driven a Tesla. I've never ridden in a Tesla. But I do know that some of the modified Teslas, if you run them too hard, like at these these uh, airport runs, you can run them hard as hell a lot fewer times than you can drive them around. So you have to plug them up and recharge them. So maybe there's a quick charge system in the future to where either they constantly recharge on their own, like when you brake, like the Acura NSX does with its front electric motors, Braking recharges those batteries. Maybe they have something like that 
but from the rest of the the modifications go, it's not going to change, right? Wheels will be wheel or, you know, wheels and tire packages, brake packages. I don't think that's going to change. It might get cooler or dorkier. Remember back in the 1980s, everybody had those blacked out GTO brand headlight covers. You'd buy them at like Chief Auto Parts or AutoZone if AutoZone was even a thing, Pet Boys. And you just attach them like my brother had an old uh, Mustang. We'd stick them on there. So some of the things are you know going to disappear, but I think overall the modification industry for aesthetics, visual aesthetics, isn't going to change at all. But I'm curious. Yeah, that's a good question. That's a really good question. Chris asks, and that's uh, Chris and Barney, Chris and Barney, like Chris and Barney, but nothing in between, C-H-R-I-S-N-B-A-R-N-E-Y, Chris and Barney. 45 years from now, the primary fuel source for personal automobiles will be blankety blank. We've been using gasoline for a long time. Now it's gasoline hybrid. I know that they were experimenting with hydrogen for a while, but that was too unstable, so they kind of went away from it. I think they're going to be using Mr. Fusion. Seen it in a documentary where they have a, it's a three-part documentary where they have a DeLorean. And at the very end of the first part of the documentary, because before it took electricity, it took a jolt. Like you could only get it from lightning or this nuclear source like uranium, like 1.21 gigawatts, right? And in this documentary, at the end, the guy shows up and he has a Mr. Fusion from the future. So with a Mr. Fusion, you just throw a bunch of trash, banana peels and shit in there. So I think 45 years from now, we'll probably be using some sort, some form of renewable energy, instantly renewable energy like Mr. Fusion. Giovanni Curiel asks, and that's Giovanni spelled traditional underscore C-U-R-I-E-L. What is the biggest challenge you had with your build? Geo, I'm going to call you Geo because you're not here to tell me I can't call you Geo. For my specific build, because I'm on probably my fourth or fifth phase or different look of my car since I've had it since 2012 for eight years. I think the biggest challenge for any build, especially if you have an Acura NSX, is being different. I don't want the same seats everybody had, but I wanted good seats. I don't want the same. There's nothing to me, and I, I think it comes from my childhood. I always felt like I had a lot to prove. I hate being just another number. Just like when I work, I need to matter. If I don't matter, then I, I just can't stand not mattering at some point. And we're not talking Instagram. None of that matters. Like one thing that always drives me crazy is pe- people are like, oh, I, I think I saw you. I, I saw an intersect that looked just like yours. Like, no, you didn't. You ain't never seen an intersect that looks just like mine. Not now, especially. And even when I take the wrap off, you still haven't seen an intersect that looks just like mine. So I think trying to be a little different, but tasteful, which is subjective. Different but tasteful has always been a big challenge. Specifically to my current look, this is the first car I've ever wrapped or designed. No experience. The biggest challenge was making sure it was accurate. Because I had to find angles that didn't exist in templates. And I had to upscale them, design them, and hope for the best. And for the most part, it worked out great. There's things I would change because I didn't know what I was doing the first time. But that was the biggest challenge. Let's get in a couple questions about uh, non-car. Spencer, which is NSX underscore Notari, N-O-T-A-R-A-R-I, like not a Rari. Is that what that means, Spencer? What's the whiskey bourbon scotch you'll buy no matter what if you find it on a menu? Spencer, I don't have one. You know why? Because if you look at my Instagram stories and you, and you see my collection, I have 
a little bit of, I wouldn't say everything, but I have things that are polar opposite. So for instance, I have multiple vodkas that I enjoy. I have Japanese lick, Japanese whiskeys. I have single malt scotches, not very many blended scotches. I have bourbon. I have whiskey. I don't like rye. I don't like stuff that's too peaty. I think, so I like, I like Macallan. I like Glenfiddich. If the price is right, and it usually is, probably Blanton's bourbon. I find that almost everywhere I go that has Blanton's, I'll get it. Because most of the other stuff that I would normally get, I already have. But not everybody has Blanton's and I can just drink it. I don't have a, have a reaction to it. Sebastian Telemontes asks, is it easy to start a podcast? I almost didn't want to answer this question, Sebastian, because this question is literally all over the internet. So it's easy to start a podcast. All you need is a microphone, a recording device like your cell phone, honestly, and something to talk about. Be interesting. Don't worry about having a polished. And then this is my opinion. Okay. Some people have this opinion. Some people don't. Don't worry about having a polished product from the jump. Worry about having interesting content. That's why this this is an automotive podcast, but it's not 100% about cars because to me, 100% about cars Tons of podcasts out there with hosts that know a hell of a lot more than I know or my guests know, but you have a lot of options there. Come in here, you get me and my opinions, like my opinion on Applebee's and Starbucks. Like Starbucks, by the way. Got to get their shit together. Harlan, Red or Green Bull Racing, are you a motorcycle guy? That's what he asks. You know what? Harlan, believe it or not, I am. I love motorcycles. I think they're beautiful. I think hogs are beautiful. I think rockets are beautiful. Um, I don't know how to ride them. Uh, I know that everything on them is the exact opposite. I have, believe it or not, ridden a motorcycle for a very short distance. I've ridden four-wheelers, which operate the exact same way, except you get four wheels in case you fuck up instead of two. You jackknife the motorcycle and bust your ass. I have to learn hard, usually, when I'm learning how to do stuff, and... With a motorcycle, I don't think I have that luxury. What I mean by that is, in a sense, like riding a bike, you're going to wipe out a lot on a bicycle when you start doing jumps, indos, bunny hops. Can't wipe out a lot on a motorcycle. So I stayed away. But I think they're works of art. I've always, I love Ducatis. They're beautiful. Like I would buy a bunch of Ducatis. I'd have a whole ducks. I'd have my ducks in a row in a living room if I had the time, the money, and the space. My car is, you know, it's a fighter jet from... Robotech, but my first Robotech love is they have a motorcycles. Like the Series 3, third generation Robotech is called uh, Mospita or Genesis Climber. And those are motorcycles that transform into body armor. That's badass. I love the Cyclone. They're called Cyclones. I love the Cyclones. Cyclone armor. Look it up. Robotech Cyclone armor. Macross Cyclone. Actually, Macross doesn't exist with the Cyclones. That's an American thing. That's another story. Those are the questions I'm answering this week. So that being said, this has been the Hard Parking Podcast. I want to spank uh, Passion High Five for the tunes. Again, coming up on the next episode, we're going to be talking a lot more about this uppity. Like I said, special thanks to you know all my sponsors. If you like this, subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever outlet you listen to it. It is important to me personally. I like knowing that I'm doing a good job and providing you guys with good content. 
Send me an email, hardparkingpodcast at gmail.com. Follow on Instagram at NA2NSX. Like I said before, please feel free to follow on Twitter at hardparkingpod. You'll see me, Jay Finning. Let's do this. Let's grow this thing together. 